Well, this is the last message in the Going Against the Flow series, and this, this morning it's uh, entitled, It's All or Nothing. And when I say it's all or no nothing, it can really speak into a lot of things, but um, we're going to go down a track today that will give you some specifics about what that really means. I want to begin with uh, reading um, from Luke chapter 14, uh, verses 25 to 27. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Now, you may not realize it, but you have likely done it. You've crossed the Rubicon. And I suspect that you've crossed the Rubicon like I have many times. The Rubicon, historically, is a shallow river in northeastern Italy, just north of Rimini. It was known as Fiumicino until 1933 when it was identified as the ancient river Rubicon, famously crossed by Julius Caesar in 49 B.C. The phrase crossing the Rubicon is an idiom which means passing a point of no return. Going somewhere but not being able to get back. It is a bounding or limiting line. I remember as a kid when uh, we would want to taunt each other or whatever, we would draw a line and say, I dare you to cross the line. You ever did that? We did it all the time as kids, and woe was you if you did cross that line. So it's a bounding or limiting line, especially one that when crossed commits a person irrevocably, meaning you just can't back up anymore. It's a limit or point that is reached when one, the results of one's actions cannot be changed. So once you've crossed the Rubicon, there is no turning back. Now many people, um, my neighbor has one, many people uh, own a Jeep. Um, then there are those who I would say have Jeep envy. Um, I know one person in the building uh, for sure that has Jeep, or, uh, Jeep envy. <laughs> It's my daughter, and she just loves that piece that she may or may not ever have. Owners uh, of Jeeps and other vehicles sometimes get crazy enough to drive them into places where they realize the only way to get out is on the back end of a tow truck because they get themselves so far in to this place and they have, an es they have overestimated the ability of that vehicle they're driving. Many years ago, uh, my wife Wanda, me, my sister, and brother-in-law were in Al who lived in Alberta. Um, we went uh, at the bidding of my brother-in-law. Let's go um, into the mountains, into the foothills of the mountains, and play with the truck. So we're only talking a pickup here, not a jeep. But needless to say, we went in. Uh, into the foothills of the mountains, and it was messy. You got up lo logging roads, and, and we thought we'd have fun. Well, my brother-in-law did anyway, um, to see how this truck of his, this four-wheel drive truck, could get through mud and muck and all that kind of stuff. And short story shorter, he ends up stuck. 
didn't matter what we did, putting logs or whatever we could find underneath the, the wheels of the truck, we just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. So we, we hero, heroically left our wives back at the car, at the truck, while me and my brother-in-law walked to find help, which was connecting with someone who could find somebody else to pick us up and get us out of our fix. And I very clearly remember that um, when, we, when we get to the place, the guy that was going to pull us out um, was somehow in the warden category as far as job, and he was not impressed. And we were driving logging roads coming back, and I think he was doing 60, 70 miles an hour because he was so upset. I'm in the back of the truck. Um, my brother-in-law's in the front seat, and I'm, I'm hanging on for dear life. Sometimes you get yourself in a spot where there is no turning back. I've crossed the Rubicon many times. I'll give you a few examples. Like when I'm strapped to the seat of a roller coaster, there's really no turning back. Or like when I'm, I hit the send button like you do sometimes and realize that you sent it to the wrong person. And sometimes your response internally is, oh, no. Or when the door closes me once I'm getting on an airplane. Or when I've said something I regret and immediately I know I can't get those words back. Trust me, I've tried. And usually it doesn't work. Generations before us have also crossed their version of the Rubicon. It would be like Noah after God closed the door of the ark. There is no turning back. Or like Moses and the Hebrews when they fled Egypt and started crossing the Red Sea. There was nothing behind them but trouble. Or Samson as he pulled on the pillars of the building just before it collapsed, killing him and all of the enemy army around him. Or like Judas after he ratted out Jesus' location to his enemies. And he was so aware that he had crossed that line, that he committed suicide. He sat, saw that as the only viable solution to what he had done to his Lord. So sometimes crossing the Rubicon can lead to a boatload of sadness and regret, like people that make a decision and that decision totally affects the rest of their lives. It might mean they're imprisoned. It might mean some different way that it just alters the trajectory of their life. Other times, other times, crossing the line is the best thing that you could ever have done, that thing that could ever change your life by taking the risk of doing this, which you believe is the right thing to do. And that's what happens when we cross the line with Jesus. When by an act of your will and my will, when we make that decision, you choose to yield or to surrender your life to him and to his purpose, when you've decided to follow Jesus, and as the old hymn says, no turning back. And I think it's repeated a couple of times. No turning back. I think there are too many people in Christendom today who um, believe in Jesus, but they leave reasons why if they need to, they can get out of the contract. Because they've allowed some space, something in their life that maybe they've not dealt with, that this is the thing that we will not go and, and let God have. And so we leave room to turn back. This morning we're talking about following Jesus 
And the fact that it's not a casual pursuit or based on some light um, or flippant commitment that we make. It's different than that. It's bigger than that. There is no halfway with God. Um, I remember debating so often, listening to guys debate in, in Bible college about um, when are you a Christian, when are you not a Christian, um, what about sit being, you know, sitting on the fence. Reality is there is no fence. You are or you are not. And that's why it's not a flippant thing that we decide. It's, it really is all or nothing. It's, it's not trying Jesus. It's wholeheartedly embracing Jesus and allowing Jesus to impact your life so that you could actually impact the lives of others. So the big idea is that following Jesus means we won't get ahead of him like I know some people love to do because they know better than God. And mostly it's in a, a season of impatience because God's doing something. And we don't like what God's doing, so we try to help God. Does that ever help <laughs> you? Not likely. Because we aren't the ones to really orchestrate our own lives because we don't always make it end up well in the end. But it means that we will become content with following someone else's lead. We follow his example. We follow the rhythm, rhythms of his life and practice as you read them in the scriptures. What would Jesus say about this? What did Jesus do about this? Should have influence in our lives. However, we need to go against the flow which is natural in us of being independent. The whole issue of the fall of mankind was that man and woman chose to live independently of God. That is the definition of sin. And as long as we try to be in charge of our life, as, as sweet as it may sound, independence is not a good thing when it comes to God because it's a, it's a, act of, a matter of control, excuse me, controlling our own lives and of making life... Um, about our three favorite people, me, myself, and I. And you can't spend a lot of time with me, myself, and I people until you're drained yourself. Now, the New Testament uses two primary terms that relate to one becoming a disciple or a Christ follower. The first is receiving. We talk about receiving Jesus into our life. That word means to receive near. It's got the idea of proximity or closeness to it. I envision the disciples close to Jesus. They weren't at a distance. They were always near to him because as their rabbi, they had to be there all the time listening and paying attention and learning, figuring out what God, Jesus is trying to teach them in the moment. It also means to associate with one's self. Peter dis disassociated himself from Jesus three times. And if you're a Christ follower, you want to identify with Jesus. You want to have things in common with Jesus. And again, this proximity thing helps make that happen because you're not at a distance with Jesus in any way. John, in his, in his gospel, wrote in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Jesus came to his own, that is his own people, and those who were his own did not receive him. When Jesus got into ministry, when he left carpentry and got into ministry, there were people that weren't too appreciative of who he was and what he stood for. And so they just kind of pushed him away. 
which overall didn't have a great big effect on him, but it did to them. But, the verse continues, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. When we receive Jesus into our hearts and lives, we at that moment become a child of God, a son, a daughter of God himself, dearly loved. The second term, Jesus speaks of believing in him, and that word it means to put faith in, to believe in or on Christ, which implies a knowledge of assent or of confidence in who he is. It's not like some people that when you get too close to them, it, they make you nervous. Maybe they, they've got a strong authoritative presence about them, whatever it could be. There's others that just make you breathe again and help you to relax and feel comfortable, feel safe. I would use that word. John 3.36, Jesus said this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, it doesn't sound like there's any fence sitting, is there? You are or you are not. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. In John chapter 20, verse 31, at the end of John's gospel, John starts with these words. These are written. In other words, everything he has said from John 1.1, this is the key verse to John's gospel. These are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we will have life by the power of his name. Every one of us, everyone who believes that Jesus is who he said he was. Believing in Jesus, I believe, affects every aspect of our lives if we let him. Every aspect. In fact, that our lives are affected by, by believing in Jesus is proof that we actually believe and follow him as a disciple. Today's text, in this text, Jesus makes it very clear what a disciple um, following him will look like, at, but also what it will cost us. I've had a lot of time and, and practice at having to think about what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus. Um, because one of the worst labels a pastor would ever want is, is that, that line that Jesus called some of his own detractors. Do you know what the word is? Starts with H, ends with hypocrite. <laughs> and so when you, when you are saying to someone that you are a Christian and people are viewing you as thinking, no, that's a little off, there's something wrong with the picture. And, the, and it's that picture that God wants us to work on. How do, he does this by giving us six real life and relatable illustrations the first one is about family. I love family. Families, as you know, aren't perfect. We are learning how to get along. Every family has to process what that really looks like and, meet and means. So into verses 25 and 26, as I read earlier, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and <clears throat> said to them, if you want to be my disciple... Now, I can, remember, I can imagine right away <clears throat> the ones, excuse me, the ones that are uh, note takers and they want to get all the words out of his mouth that they can so they can learn and, and apply and all those kinds of things. Um, as soon as he says this, if you want to be my disciple, they're just like bated breath. They're just sitting there waiting for what you're going to say next. And man, were they mistaken about what they might have heard. 
You must, if you want to be my disciple, hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot, cannot be my disciple. Now, what does he really mean by hate? Does he really mean to hate his family members? It doesn't mean that at all. The idea here is that there is no other relationship that is competing for your affection or attention more than Jesus Christ. That's what this word hate in this context means. It's the same kind of thing that we need to ask ourselves that question, will Jesus be the most important person in my life? And that's the very same question, maybe shaped differently, that we would ask someone that we're going to marry. Is this person going to be the most important person in my life? And that should help us make some decisions. Jesus is attempting actually here to thin out the crowd, to speak to those who are really only impressed by the hype and the miracles. He grew large crowds everywhere he went. I mean, different verses, if you read them, if you look at his stories, sometimes he's in a building where nobody else can get in the building. It is so full. There have been times there are so many people around Jesus that they don't have time to eat as disciples. They just, he just attracts people because of what's happening. And he's trying to thin out this piece that they're really not in it. They're just there for the thrill of the ride. Just for the thrill of the ride. So he also uses the word if. If you want to be my disciple. It's one of the most profound decisions you will ever make in your life. Becoming a disciple of Jesus is first and foremost a choice. A choice, something that we have to think about and make a calculated decision about. It is not a random thing. It's not a spur-of-the-moment thing. It's something that you take very, very seriously. You ask yourself, what do I do with this man called Jesus? And when you can answer that question in a way that leads to faith, then you've stumbled on something most helpful in your life. Second illustration is of cross-bearing. Cross-bearing. The text says this, verse 27, If you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. We each, one of us, has a cross to carry, a burden to bear. We would sometimes say it's the sickness that we have, or we could label it with a whole lot of names. But the fact is, life isn't always easy, and it feels to us like it's a difficulty that I'm carrying some kind of a cross. Now, I can't help every time I, I come. By the way, I sit over here because it's just because I do. And I'm always pondering that's, that big thing over there. So when, when someone was pulled out of the crowd to carry Jesus' cross for him, um, they were talking about that level bar, the level bar at the top where he ultimately would have been nailed to. Now, I imagine myself that if, my, if I look at my life and think, is, is, is carrying that like a burden to me, what would I learn from that? Could I, could I be encouraged by that? And I think God could use all kinds of crazy scenarios to teach me. But there are times in life that you and I have to admit this 
just stinks. Life just is no good. Everybody feels those things every once in a while. But then Matthew has some words that kind of not just counteracts it, but gives us a different perspective on what it really means to us. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, this beautiful invitation. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is what? Light. So he can take the most heavy stuff that we're going through. We come to him, and he does this somehow unfair exchange of taking all of our nonsense and makes it light, makes it easy. Why? Because God is now the one in charge, and I'm not. I concede that I can't do anything and only God can. And it takes this great sense of humility to stand in a place like that and process it like that. The second or third illustration that Jesus gives us is, is about building projects. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, he says. This is, this is like the man piece right here. You know how you wake up in the middle of the night and you get up in the morning and you, you say to your wife... I'm going to build something today. And the, you know the response, right? Short of you're an idiot to you don't know what you're talking about. You've never built anything in your life. But we have these ideas which, which just may not end well. Suppose the text says one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost and see if there's enough money to complete it? Makes sense, right? Financial sense, brain sense, embarrassment sense, everything. Otherwise, otherwise you might complete only the foundation before running out of money and then everyone will laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started the building and couldn't afford to finish it. That's one of these laughable situations that we never want to be in, and we never will as long as we look at it in a good and wise way and how to do what, we as people, what, what God is calling us to do. Fourth illustration is about war and peace. What king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether an army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. The idea, I think, in context is this guy's a long ways away, so he's got time, but can he do it? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. Humility, it, it just takes a whole package of things to get you into a place where you're going to say, let's do this and we'll have peace amongst us. But it's critical. It's necessary. You cannot, you cannot follow Jesus without understanding that when you decide to follow Jesus, you are signing up for a spiritual battle for the rest of your life as long as you want to be loyal to Jesus. Is it always that evident? No, it's not. Is it subtle sometimes? Yes, it is. All we need to know is that God's in charge and our enemy isn't. 
So the, the less room we give to thinking about the enemy, the more room we have to think about Jesus and what he's doing to protect us and help us in those times. Illustration of number five um, is kind of a, a downer. It's about possessions. So, Jesus says, you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Now, tell me, does that literally mean you have to give up everything that you own? When the rich ruler came to Jesus and says, what do I need to do? There was kind of like extra to be saved. And he told them, go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. And he was a man who owned much property and he went away. I'd say that we would use the word depressed today. No resolve, no commitment to Jesus. Just He was just demoralized and just walked away. Get, get, give up everything that you own. That is, you are so dependent on Jesus that your possessions do not possess you. You, like me, know people whose possessions own them. And they're so overprotective. It's a billion-dollar in industry and more um, with all of our wonderful uh, you, you store your stuff in my box kind of thing. People are making... Uh, I, I was talking to a fellow, uh, actually a retired pastor, and he opened up um, some storage places in an old chicken barn. Chickens were gone, so he did this, and he was making $50,000 a month um, from people storing their stuff that they don't have room for at home and probably will never look at them again. To give up, that word give up means to say goodbye to, to renounce or to willingly give up or set aside what one possesses. And you just don't do that randomly either without some great thought and insight about why you would do that and what it could mean. The last illustration is about salt, which I always kind of think is a weird thing. Jesus says salt is good for seasoning, but if it, it, if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is neither good for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Salt was often used in the Middle East um, to uh, go on the ground to help crops produce better. Don't know if that's true today, but that was the, the case. Mark 9, verse 50, says it this way. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you salt it again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Having salt in yourselves is an, a, a, an image of you being attractive and helpful and encouraging and a blessing to other people. Not salt as in nasty salt, but an in, you have an influence where you can elevate the lives of other people. There are people that I know that just, they just love encouraging people. It's just what they do best. And we need to figure out how that we could use this in our own lives to be that kind of a person to people who just desperately need it today. Colossians 4, 5 and says, says this, 6 says this. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Doesn't mean that we can be nasty in, as insiders. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, 
seasoned with salt, which has the idea of pleasant and kind and respectful, so that you may know how to answer everyone in the context of the questions that they'll ask you about your faith. How good are you at demonstrating a heart and, and mind full of grace toward people? Or with this seasoned sense of saltiness about you that, that helps people uh, to find and, and to be honored in being uh, the way you treat them, respectfully, kindly, seriously. The last verse in this passage is both the point and the application. Verse 14, or verse 35, the second part of it. Jesus says, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Now, every one of us has ears. For some reason, we don't all have the same ears that work the same, but we all have ears. And anyone who he hears should listen and understand. It literally means that the one who has ears is expected to apply the lesson, this lesson, to himself. I can't tell you how many times over the years where after church someone would come up to me and say, oh, and, and name a name, and say they just so much need to hear this message. And they totally didn't think it would be something that they could hear, that maybe was just for them. But they thought, i got to go tell somebody else. They need this more than I do. Could be helpful, but all the time, that way, not so much. Going against the flow for Jesus meant that it was all for all or nothing. And no one better captures the truth of the Rubicon than Jesus himself. He demonstrated by his life and death that he was all in, that there was no turning back. And there's no better snapshot of the total commitment of his life than that of the cross. What Jesus endured on the cross for you and for me because he loves you that much. As you do your job this week, as you do life at home, wherever, whatever, ponder what God is doing in your life because of what Jesus did for you and how it's different and maybe about what he's asking you to do about it so that you could be an inspiration to someone else. I pray that that would be something that you would wrestle with and apply this week. Bless you all. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for hearts that are interested in hearing, for minds that are um, interested in thinking through situations. And thank you, God, for giving us the grace to be able to give it to other people, the respect that they deserve, the, the loyalty that is theirs, the kindness that they need. May we, God, be in the business of building other people up so that you are brought glory in their journey. Thank you, God, for being with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.